0: But it is no exaggeration to say that the entire Christian faith stands or falls on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. If Jesus did not literally, physically, bodily rise from the dead, there is no Christian faith. There is no salvation, there is no forgiveness, there is no reason for me to preach today, there is no reason for us to gather. But if, on the other hand, Jesus did rise from the dead, then not only do you have a wonderful reason to be here, and not only do I have the best news in the world to preach, but we also have the assurance of forgiveness and salvation for all those who entrust themselves to Jesus. And the Christian faith bears witness to and celebrates what God Himself has done for us that we might be saved through the death and resurrection of His own Son. That's why we're here. I'm standing here today because I believe Jesus rose from the dead and that He's alive, even now, reigning from heaven. There are a lot of things that we might uh, doubt or second guess or be uncertain about. There are a lot of doctrines you might not feel like you've sorted through yet. But when I'm struggling with doubt or uncertainty about various things, this is what I come back to over and over and over. The evidence that Jesus came out of the tomb. The evidence that Jesus is Alive. That is our bedrock. That is what we believe. That is why we are here. I know that's why many of you are here, because you are convinced, you believe that Jesus is alive. Now, it does not take much boldness for us to bear witness to that today. It does take some, but we stand in a long line of Christians going back now nearly 2,000 years, who have confessed their faith in not only a crucified, but a risen Savior. And who have been baptized in His name, publicly proclaiming that they believe in Jesus, that they belong to Jesus. And many who have also stood up to preach that same message over the, two, over the last 2,000 years. And for many of them... It took much more boldness to do so. Because there was much more likelihood that there would be a steep cost that they would have to pay for publicly proclaiming their faith in Jesus. Without doubt, some of the boldest were those who stood up to preach the resurrection of Jesus on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and those who in response to Peter's preaching of the resurrection of Jesus were publicly baptized in Jesus' name. And the reason why I say they were some of the boldest is because that sermon and those who were baptized on that day, that took place just a couple of months after Jesus himself had been tried and publicly put to death in Jerusalem. It took place in the same city. The same people were still there. And to stand up in that place and say that the Jesus you crucified is alive and reigning in heaven and he's the Messiah. To say that on that day was to put your life on the line. No exaggeration. But that's exactly what Peter and thousands of others did that day. So I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 2 this morning. And we're going to pick up Peter's sermon beginning in verse 22. And then we'll go through verse 36. This is the heart of Peter's message. And again, this is taking place not long after Jesus' resurrection. This is the first public sermon after Jesus has risen from the dead it takes place on the day of Pentecost it's taking place in Jerusalem this is a major feast there are people from all over the world Jews who have come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast Uh, that happened about 50 days after the Passover which is when Jesus was crucified and a great crowd had gathered uh, and the disciples were Speaking in all kinds of different languages. Many of you know this story. And uh, as this crowd had gathered, uh, Peter stood up to address them. And here's what he said, beginning verse 22. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now Peter had one distinct advantage as he was preaching this sermon and that was this many of the people who heard what Peter was preaching they had seen and heard about Jesus for themselves uh, Peter tells them in verse 22 he says you know I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know in other words I'm not telling you anything new. When I mention to you that I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth, you know who he is. And when I tell you that he did many signs and wonders and miracles, you've heard about them. Maybe some of you witnessed them yourselves. Even Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, when he came to Jesus in John chapter 3, he recognized that no one could do the things that Jesus was doing unless God was with him. That wasn't up for dispute or debate among many. There were some questions, and the Pharisees, of course, many of them denied it. But many people recognized what Jesus was doing. None of them could deny the miracles. In fact, those who were so opposed to Jesus, they had to go so far as to claim that Jesus must be operating by the power of the prince of demons to do what he was doing, which, of course, was... Foolish, and Jesus showed them so. Everybody knew that Jesus was doing these miracles, and that meant that God was with him. And yet, this Jesus, who'd done nothing wrong, who'd harmed no one, who'd helped everyone, they put to death. They handed him over to the Romans, who were in many ways their enemies. And they pleaded for Jesus to be crucified. It was not enough for him to be punished or imprisoned. They wanted him dead. They even exchanged for him a man named Barabbas, who was a notorious murderer. But Peter says, even this was not a surprise. This was God's plan. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus himself had said... This is why I came. I came, the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, this is the charge I received from my Father, that I lay down my life and that I take it up again. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. So as, in one sense, tragic as Jesus' death was, it was intentional, it was the plan, it was God's purpose so that we could be saved, so that we could be forgiven. And yet, that doesn't mean that those who crucified him were off the hook. He says at the end of verse 23, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. So yes, it was God's plan, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. You have sinned in rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. You know who he is. You know God was with him. You know what he did, and yet you rejected him. And there are still uh, plenty of people today who will say that they don't disbelieve that there was a person named Jesus. They don't necessarily doubt that he did miraculous things and had wise teaching and things like that. They don't Deny that he died on the cross. And yet they don't really want anything to do with him either. That's still a problem. So Peter says, here's what God did, verse 24. You crucified him, but God raised him up. Which is, great news, but also a big problem for those who crucified Jesus, because that means a couple of things one, their plan to get rid of Jesus did not work you can likewise ignore Jesus, push Jesus away, keep him in the back of your mind, but not really want to trust him or follow him or listen to him, but here's the thing he's not ever going to go away He is alive. And we have to reckon with that. And if we will reckon with that, rightly, we'll find it to be good news. And Peter will tell us why in just a moment. But for now, we need to know Jesus was raised up by God. And Peter says it was not even possible for Jesus to be held by death. If it weren't for Jesus, when you and I died... That would be the it. That would be the end of it. That would be it. We, none of us have power over death. None of us have the ability to escape death or thwart death. Many people try. Some people make a good run of it for a while, but nobody save for Jesus, can it be said of us or of him that it was not possible for him to be held? By death, And yet that was true of Jesus. Jesus was crucified, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and yet God raised him up. And he is still alive today. That is the heart of the Christian faith. Of everything else that the Bible teaches us that is important, there is nothing more important than this. This is what all Christians, regardless of what denomination you come from, regardless of what period of church history you lived in, this is what all Christians in all times and all places have confessed together as the most important truths. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance. There's nothing more important than this. As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the 3rd day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the most important thing that anybody can ever hear or know or believe. And that's not about being, you know, Baptist or Methodist or, you know, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or whatever. That's what Christians Everywhere, believe. This is the good news. This is what we celebrate on Easter. Now, why was it that Jesus was not able to be held by death? Well, Peter explains, starting in verse 25, and he does so by quoting the words of David. You know David, the king from the Old Testament. Uh, he wrote many of the psalms, right? Um, and one of the psalms that he wrote, <clears throat> we call Psalm 16. Paul, or excuse me, Peter quotes from it here in verses 25 to 28. And in that psalm, in verse 27, it says, "You will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption." Now, I don't know about you, but it, it took me uh, longer than it should have to realize uh, that whenever I'm listening to a song that I like, you know, that just because it says I in the song doesn't mean that it's about the guy who's singing the song. You know what I'm talking about? Like I just always assumed if they were singing about me and I and this is what happened, I just assumed they were telling their own story, right? But it was their autobiography there in the song. It took me, again, longer than it should have to realize they might be singing somebody else's story. Even though they're using the word I or using the word me. And that's what David is doing here. We might read that psalm and think that David is saying about himself. God, you're not going to abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. But Peter tells us that psalm is not about David. He's not singing about himself. He's singing about somebody else. Peter says in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So, that line about you will not let your Holy One see corruption can't be about David because he's over there corrupting right now. Right? We know where his tomb is, we know his body's still in there. That was not about David. So, who's it about? Peter says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet. Do you know David was a prophet? When he wrote those Psalms, he's speaking for God, he's speaking God's word. He's a prophet. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Remember, God had promised David one of your own descendants, one of your own sons, someone from your line, I'm going to sit him on the throne of your kingdom. And his kingdom is going to be established forever. No end to that kingdom. David knew that. And when he wrote this psalm, he's thinking about and speaking about that person who would come from his line, who would be a king, who would reign forever. And he says of him in verse 31, uh, Peter's saying, what David's doing is he foresaw and spoke about The resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that promised king that would come from his line. That he, the Christ, not David, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David was prophesying about the resurrection of Jesus a thousand years before it happened. He also prophesied about the death of Jesus a thousand years before it happened. You go home this afternoon and read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is another psalm that David wrote, and it begins with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that Jesus himself spoke as he suffered on the cross. And if you read through Psalm 22... You will see in that psalm a description of the mockery, the suffering, the piercing even that Jesus experienced, the casting of lots for his clothing, all of it prophesied by David a thousand years before it took place. But not just his suffering and crucifixion, but also his resurrection were prophesied by David. And he says, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. This Jesus, the one from David's line, the one you crucified, the one David was writing about in Psalm 16, this Jesus God raised up. You see, Peter is not simply claiming that Jesus is not in the tomb, and so our best guess is he's probably alive somewhere. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter is about to tell us that he and many others are eyewitnesses of the fact that Jesus is alive. But before he does that, he tells them, this shouldn't even have surprised us. Jesus himself had told his disciples on more than one occasion that he would rise from the dead after he died. And now Peter says, look, this was in our scriptures. We've sung this psalm together. We have heard this psalm read in our synagogues. And it has been preparing us for generations for this very day. So that when we discovered the empty tomb, we would know God had planned for this all along. And we should not have been surprised. Surprised we were, but we shouldn't have been. Because he told us long before it happened. But not only that, Peter seeks to persuade the people he's preaching to about the resurrection of Jesus, not only through bringing in this prophecy from David, but also bearing witness to what he has seen. Verse 32, he says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Now how many eyewitnesses do you need to confirm that something happened? typically? Two? Three would be nice, right? One's usually not enough. But two or three, that's usually pretty good. Peter, when he says, of that we all are witnesses, he is talking about, at a minimum, all of the other apostles. Remember, there were 12 apostles, 12 disciples of Jesus that he set apart uh, to be his special, authorized messengers. One of those disciples, Judas, betrayed Jesus and then later took his life. And so in Acts chapter 1, uh, they replace Judas. They, so, someone needs to fulfill his office, they say. And so they need someone else to take Judas's place. But they didn't want to put just anybody in that position. These are apostles. These are Christ's authorized messengers. So who does this replacement apostle need to be? What does he need to know? What are the qualifications? Well, back in chapter 1, just before this sermon, in verse 21 and 22, Peter says this, here's the kind of person that we need to join us to take Judas' place. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so during all of his ministry, beginning from the baptism of John, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, Until the day when he was taken up from us. So after his resurrection, all the way to his ascension into heaven. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So there are at least 12 men standing there. Plus the women who had gone to the tomb and found it empty. Who are saying, we're not making this up. We have seen Jesus with our own eyes. We have touched him. With our own hands. Peter could have said, look, even some of us were skeptical at first. In Matthew 28, when Jesus is with his disciples just before he ascends into heaven, it says they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Thomas, remember, on one occasion said, some of the other disciples had seen Jesus, they'd seen him risen from the dead, and Thomas said, well, I'm not believing this stuff. I will only believe... If I see him for myself and get to put my hands in the place where the nails pierced him when they crucified him, only then am I going to believe. And Jesus showed up and said, Thomas, here I am. Touch my hands, touch my feet, put your hand in my side. And Thomas didn't just say, okay, okay, I was wrong, I believe. He said, My Lord and my God. Peter and the other disciples not only see now that Jesus' crucifixion was prophesied by David, they are not only witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection, not because they were there at the tomb when Jesus walked out, but because they saw him after he had walked out. They saw him, they touched him, they heard from him, they were in his presence, and something has happened to them. You remember what Peter was doing the last time we saw him? The night that Jesus was crucified, what did Peter do? Well, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter had said, I will die with you. And he meant it. Because when those soldiers came to arrest Jesus, Peter had his sword out. And he started to go to town. He took off the ear of the high priest's servant. But Jesus stopped him, told him to put away his sword, healed the ear of the servant of the high priest. After that, Peter was done. Anytime somebody said, Weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of his disciples? Your accent sounds like you're from Galilee too. You, You must be one of Jesus' disciples. Every time Peter denied it, he swore it wasn't him, he disavowed any connection whatsoever with Jesus. Now, here he is in the same city where Jesus was crucified in the same city where Peter refused to even be connected to Jesus, now he is standing up in public with a crowd of people in front of him saying I have seen Jesus alive. You don't think he knew in the back of his head the people who had tried to get rid of Jesus in the first place would love to try to get rid of him if he started telling people that Jesus was still alive? Remember what they wanted to do to Lazarus? After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, more people started believing in Jesus. So they said, well now not only do we have to get rid of Jesus, we got to get rid of Lazarus too. You think Peter didn't know there was a good chance they'd try to get rid of him? Absolutely. But something has emboldened Peter. Something has changed and transformed Peter. He has seen his Savior alive. And he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. And now nothing can stop Peter from preaching about the resurrection of Jesus. He's an eyewitness. He speaks of prophecy fulfilled. But not only that, he says in verse uh, 34, or excuse me, 33, He says, about Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here's another piece of evidence for the reality of Jesus' resurrection. What brought this crowd of people together to listen to Peter in the first place was this. There was a loud sound like a rushing wind. That came. And the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples that were gathered in that upper room. And there were tongues of fire, as it were, above their heads. And they began to speak about the things that God had done in all these different languages. And a crowd gathered because they had heard this commotion and they wanted to know what was going on. And they found these disciples preaching and they thought, What is going on? And some of the people, grasping at straws apparently to try to explain what was going on, said, these guys must be drunk or something. That's the only thing we know to explain what is going on. And that's when Peter stood up. And he began his sermon by saying, these guys aren't drunk. I'll tell you what's happened. The prophet Joel told us that there would come a day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh And Joel said, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Peter said, that's what you're witnessing. Now what he says at the end of the sermon is essentially this. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus died at Passover and now at the next feast, Pentecost, The Holy Spirit is poured out upon a group of people who are prophesying and proclaiming what God has done through Christ. No, it's not a coincidence. Jesus, who has risen from the dead and been raised up to God's right hand, He is the one who is now pouring out the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has instigated what you are witnessing today. What you are seeing and hearing, Peter says. Jesus did that, and he could not do that unless he was alive, but he is alive, and David prophesied about that too, and he quotes from David once again, and then he draws this conclusion in verse 36. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he says, here's what I want you to know for sure. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior that God had promised all those many centuries ago. It was Jesus. It was Him. And He is now the Lord. The resurrected Lord. The reigning Lord. One day He will be the returning Lord. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's who He is. And when he said that, we're told next that many in the crowd said, what do we do? They were convinced. They were persuaded. They were cut to the heart, the Bible says. They had been convicted. They had rejected the Messiah they had been waiting for. They had sent him to his death. They had responded wrongly to him. They had rejected the one they should have received. And so they said, what then should we do? And Peter's answer was very simple. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. And make that, that trust public by being baptized in Jesus' name. That, was, that took a lot of boldness too. Because all those who were baptized in the name of Jesus that day were saying also to the world that was watching, to the Roman soldiers that were there, to everyone who had rejected and crucified Jesus, they were saying, we believe He's alive. And we belong to Him now. And we're going to follow Him. We want to bear His name. We want to be His. Peter says, if you repent and you're baptized in His name, you too will receive the Holy Spirit. You'll receive forgiveness of sins. You'll receive new life in Christ. You'll be brought into His family. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's, if you're not a Christian, that's what we want you to hear. Right? We want you to respond to To put your trust in Jesus. To turn to Jesus. No longer ignore Him. No longer reject Him. No longer try to keep Him at a distance. But to embrace Him. To take His name. To tell the world that you belong to Him. Because you believe that He's alive. And that He's Lord. And for those of us who already bear the name of Jesus. Here's what I want you to take with you when we part today. I want you to remember that we join with Peter, with the apostles, and with all of our brothers and sisters over the last 2,000 years and all over the world today when we say He is risen. We do not make that confession alone. We join Millions upon millions who also believe and proclaim that he's alive. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray.